pandemic got us into a reflective space and made us look inward to see what we can do for the world at large. As a self-expression coach, I became a catalyst for women and started Vani, a one-on-one -on -one coaching program for women on finding their voice, to speak up, to be visible. As a storyteller, I spotted there were many ordinary people amongst us leading extraordinary lives, making a difference to the world, and they needed to be heard. Thus was born You and I with Rashmi Shetty, where amazing personal journeys with their uniqueness and individuality are showcased. A reaffirmation of the fact, open your eyes wider, the world is far more beautiful when we acknowledge the presence of both you and I. guest today is Bhavna Isar, the founder and CEO of a social venture, Caregiver Sati, which is a high-tech and high-touch platform that supports family caregivers through a care navigation system that aims to ease access to resources like advice, information, community, professional services, and learning tools. Bhavna consults with organizations in building caregiver-friendly and compassionate workplaces that are both resilient and innovative. A motorcyclist, Bhavna believes motorcycling has helped her push the boundaries of both her body and mind. She supports women motorcyclists to realize their dreams. She expresses through poetry and believes humor powers resilience. Listen in as Bhavna shares why caregivers should be part of every organization's diversity and inclusion plans. Hi Bhavna, such a pleasure to reconnect. Welcome to You and I with Rashmi Shet. You know, the last time we met up in Bangalore, you said something very powerful. You said that caregiving should be included in diversity and inclusion. And for me, that was the biggest aha. It's such a big segment of the population that is into caregiving, but an ignored one nevertheless. And those who are doing it also don't give it that much importance because they have forgotten themselves in the process of caregiving and think it's part of their duty. So that is when I thought maybe we should revisit what has happened in the last three years with Caregiver Sati and with your own personal journey, Bhavna, because there's so much that you have given to Caregiver Sati and I'm sure you yourself must have seen shifts from within. So last time you told me you sat in meditation on a full moon night and nothing came out of it. <laughs> Since, have you sat on a full moon night and thought about it? But what has happened in the last three years with you first and then caregiver Sati next. Where would you want to start? So I'd like to reframe first that that full moon night and the Buddha Purnima and my meditation that, you know, uh, well, nothing really came out of it, felt like nothing really came out of it. Uh, but to be fair, I think it was the beginning of a journey. And, you know, when a journey begins, you might not attribute it to the first step 
you usually attribute it to the destination. And to me, that meditation, that moment, that moment of reflection really was like the first step. Yeah. So uh, the first step does not really yield much, but it's the multiple steps that you keep taking, sometimes slipping back, but yet persevering is what gets you to your destination or at least a milestone. So I would I would be amiss if I said we've reached our destination. Certainly not. Uh, but we've crossed many milestones. And I think that journey began there. So to be fair, uh, that moonlit night or the advice of meditating under the full moon was the beginning of a journey. I think Caregiver Sathi at that time felt like the coming together of my life purpose. Uh, you know, I felt that I've lived a life of a certain kind. Does it have any meaning? And it would have meaning if it made it better for other caregivers who were in similar circumstances as I was. And they didn't have to go through what I went through. That was my approach. And of course, it is open to, to challenge and it is open to, uh, you know, saying what nonsense. So Caregiver Sathi to me feels like, you know, I grew up uh, to be a techie. <laughs> I am a techie at heart. Technology and gadgets excite me. I, my eyes light up. If life had not guided me differently, I may well have been in the world of technology. But I needed to be, uh, you know, I needed to be an earning professional uh, because of life circumstances. And so I got into management and by virtue of being in management in HR, I got into behavioral sciences and organization development and process work. So my life experience or my professional experience uh, was more around behavioral sciences, people, organizations. And my life experience was that of being a caregiver. So if you kind of look at the intersection of all these, caregiver Sathi is the intersection of all. It is my way of looking at all the caregivers in the world and saying, what can we do from a technology standpoint, as well as from a behavioral sciences standpoint or organization standpoint, so that the modern day caregiver has it easier. I think a big part of my motivation of why then usually stuff about greater social good is, you know, let me earn my money, let me live my life. And then when I retire, I will do philanthropy or I will do something uh, is the uh, is a typical path. Um, and it's a great path. I think uh, it is important to have wealth. And it is important to have the power of money to, uh, to make a difference to things that you're passionate about. A large number of entrepreneurs, uh, whether it is Bill Gates or it is many others, uh, would have financial wealth and therefore the muscle to be able to make a difference. I believe in my case, there was a, another defining criteria. That defining criteria was, uh, I have always been restless and I have never known why I am as restless as I am. There are many reasons probably, but I have come to realize that one of the bigger reasons was that somewhere in my psyche, the number 54 was deeply etched and scarred, uh, literally. 54 is 
the age at which my dad passed. I think I had to go to multiple offices uh, to uh, one, get uh, the death certificate, which says what was his age. And I had to write that multiple number of times. So it just became a thing. And two, invariably people, when you know they get to know, they say, they would ask, so how old was he? As if it makes a difference, <laughs> but it does. And I think it made a big difference to me. Every time I said he was 54, it just deepened that scar. It was only last year when I was listening to uh, Andrew Cooper's uh, podcast on All That There Is. It's a beautiful, beautiful podcast about grief. Uh, and he, uh, there was one uh, guest who he was interviewing. And in that, they spoke about how the age of the parent, when a child loses a parent young, the age of the parent becomes a big milestone. And I think it's true for me as well. So my restlessness is a little about what if I don't live to be even 54? You know, who has the time? Uh, what if I never retire and <laughs> never have the opportunity to do what I want to do? So I might as well do it now. And whether or not I have enough money, uh, whether or not I have amassed enough wealth for myself or my uh, my child, <laughs> there is stuff that must be done now. And and in this, I think I'm extremely grateful to my mother for the spirit of financial freedom that she gave me. I had the confidence to say, okay, I'm going to do this. And if I fail, I still know how to make money or get back. So I will, but let me do this now. So that is the story or that's where Kegiva Sathi started with a sense of purpose and a little restlessness and whatever meaning that I gave it at that time. I'm going to turn 50 next year. I recently read uh, some research which said that women who reach 49 without any significant illness are likely to live up to 92. <laughs> you know, right there, you've given a lot of hope to a lot of us. So, you know, so much for the, you know, the emotional hooks <laughs> and uh, everything around uh 54 and age and the unconscious meanings that we make life is ephemeral or mysterious we don't know what is there in store because my grandmother live up, lived up to 92 <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, and uh, there is no reason that I should live you know similar to my dad but not other members of my family <laughs> so here we are it is freaky and it is scary <laughs> that, uh, my God, I might have a full life ahead of me. So I think Caregiver Sathi is at an interesting point where it is not just my swan song. It is not just that last thing that I must do to make my life meaningful. But it is one of the things that I need to do to live my life fully. It is one of the things that gives me uh, joy, challenge, and it is also not all of who I am. Interestingly, over the last three, four years, uh, I have been deeply associated with caregiver sati and caregivers. And it is very exciting and amusing at the same time when if somebody reads an article about caregiving somewhere, whether it is the Washington Post or New York Times, at least 15 people will send me the same link. <laughs> as if you know I must read this so there is such a beautiful deep association that has been built with me but I do hope that I can and if I have the opportunity of living up to 92 
it can be caregiver sadhi and much more. And uh, so can caregiver sadhi itself be much more. Uh, and that's where we are. It can be much more. So can caregiver sadhi also be much more. I love that statement because there's so much of uh, depth in that statement. And uh, let's take 92, okay? Which means another lifetime itself because they say 50 is half your life. <laughs> And the remaining half. But the first 50 is full of life, full of energy, health on your side. But as we age, life really gets challenging. And we are talking about the caregivers of this aging community, which is increasing in India as much as we are the youngest democracy. So we have two spectrums here we are looking at. And caregivers start playing a very important role. So... In the last three years, what shifted, Bhavna, and the way you looked at this whole concept that you are now thinking of advocating it into diversity and inclusion as well, where nobody speaks about caregivers, which is a huge community. And I remember a point where I met a caregiver who was almost in tears when she was talking about her completely dependent brother, who she had to bring from Bombay to Bangalore because her parents were no more. And she said, I can't find a male helper. And my entire life is around my brother now. And I don't know how I'm going to handle myself. And she was in tears. But there was no place she could go and share this where other people would have told her something which would have made her feel much more stronger. So that is where caregiving is today. So in such a scenario, what do you see as caregiver Sati's space and place in getting this heard? In 2018 and 19 is when I started first talking about the idea of caregiver Sati. I remember multiple conversations at that time, which it was difficult for me to get across the concept. It still is. I will talk about that. But at that time, it was really hard. In fact, I remember very vividly uh, talking to a friend and, uh, you know, in a corporate setting, uh, I had put together a set of slides and to say, you know, let me make a presentation. And the first slide was that we are sitting on a time bomb, a healthcare time bomb that might blow up in our faces. And I remember, vividly remember the look of the person who was receiving the presentation. And if I could put a thought bubble around him, it would have said, oh my God, what a drama queen. <laughs> like he had that expression. So I said, you know, and we've gone through the pandemic. So here we are. If there was a silver lining that the pandemic brought it front and center for all of us, the lives of a caregiver. So when there is a long-term home-based care that somebody has to give, everything that we went through during the pandemic is the everyday life of a caregiver. You know, we can say we went through this in the pandemic, which means we were isolated, we were helpless, we didn't have access to medical resources, we had anxiety, we had uh, mental health challenges, we had lack of help, we were exhausted, uh, we had no hope. Uh, and, um, you know, and one got news of people passing, uh, leaving us numb 
So compassion fatigue was a real experience of each one of us. So all of us experienced being caregivers. So post the pandemic, I have to just remind you, and you know, you can easily relate with a caregiver who it's not like we've not had these caregivers all these years. We've always had them, but they were always a minority. They were always hidden because you know many women would handle this work in every home. Uh, and now it was a lived experience of the whole world. So the pandemic shifted the experience for everyone and brought caregivers and caregiving front and center. Of course, uh, <laughs> it's easy for us and we want to wish it away so we don't want to remember it. But it's a lot easier for me to talk about the concept of caregiver sati today than it was in 2018. And there is, interestingly, a lot of research. Only last month, BCG released a report uh, which speaks about serving uh, employees and corporates in Southeast Asia. Uh, it's a publicly available report, which speaks, which says that they spoke with um, corporate employees and asked them to identify in two categories, either as employee caregivers, caregiver employees or non-caregiver employees. Across Southeast Asia, as many as 60% identify as caregiver employees. Can you guess the number in India? About 70, 75%? 88. Oh my God. Yeah. And if only these were the two categories, and that article speaks beautifully about what is it that organizations need to do. A very large number of organizations that I speak with today would often talk about caregiving support as a benefit and as something that, you know, if you had the money, you can go and buy the services elsewhere, right? Which means hiring a helper or something like that. So if we can offer that service, then that's a benefit that organizations would want to offer. But what that article talks about and what I really wish that we could have more and more uh, leaders of organizations speak about or worry about is that workplaces need to be different than how they have been. What does that mean? That means that up until now, or just like in the industrial age, we had workplaces of a certain kind. And then we said, um, but it's not just men. It's not just young, able men who work in workplaces. Modern workplaces will have differently abled women and many others who will be working in the workplaces. So workplaces need to be different. For example, you need to have bathrooms for women. You need to have lactating rooms. Uh, you need to have uh, ramps and accessibility. You need to have the ability that people can talk. Um, you know, you can listen to people who have hearing challenges, uh, who have speaking challenges and so on and so forth, right? So you want to become inclusive places. But the fact is that the biggest part of our identity is that we are caregivers. Whether we are bringing up children or we are caring for our family members as adults or we are looking after older adults, for a very significant part of our employed lives, we are caregivers. 
And which is why it is very important for organizations to see this and become inclusive for caregivers, just as we make efforts to be inclusive of women, people with certain sexual orientation, people with a gender orientation, people with ability differences, and so on and so forth. Up until now, uh, women have carried the load of caregiving in homes, in personal spaces, sometimes singularly and sometimes doubling up with work. So increasingly, as the boundaries of personal and professional lives blur, and as we want different types of people at the workplace, we will need to account for the fact that being caregivers is a very significant aspect of our existence. Which is why people who are invested in inclusive workplaces need to recognize caregiving as a segment, very large segment. And uh, post-pandemic, has it been, you said that it was easy for you now to start the conversation, but how well are the organizations in corporate India responding to you when you put this forth? There is curiosity. There is a desire to know. But most organizations are um, driven by um, budget priorities, rightfully so. Uh, as well as it helps if it becomes a crisis enough. So in India, it might not yet be crisis enough. It is crisis enough in the US, for example. So the compulsion to do something is not high enough. So it's a nice to do. It's a thing to explore. It falls under, did we do something under this heading so let's say that we did something under this. I remember during the pandemic, I had uh, multiple queries because at that time it was a crisis and everybody wanted caregiver support. So everything went behind it. Now it is not, which is a great thing. But what we are also therefore not doing is that we are not digging the well ahead of time. It will be difficult to dig the well when we are thirsty. Organizations may need to think about it like an investment. And I'm not sure if many are able to do that already. I really hope that those who listen to your podcast will be energized and will want to invest and will want to say that, oh, this is something we need to do because, you know, the demographics and the future of work is changing. The employee of the future will expect this from organizations. So how can we become ready for it? How can we be ahead of the curve uh, versus others? But there, is, there, there are early signs, some are curious, some are uh, beginning to do little uh, initiatives, testing the ground. Yeah. So what does it take to make it a crisis, Bhavna? Because it is the truth that we are denying or is it a truth that not many people are aware of? Because sometime back I was reading about loneliness amongst youngsters but then so are the senior citizens as well, lonely. And loneliness can be a huge, huge epidemic. So what crisis are we talking about here that should happen 
for people to understand that, okay, this needs to be taken priority over others? Uh, as far as I'm concerned, the crisis is there. For example, the uh, there is a talent crisis. And uh, increasingly, organizations are not able to tap into a large number of people because they are opting out of the workforce on account of caregiving responsibilities. Whether it is women, which is classic, or it is they are choosing to do jobs at different levels of capability. So to some extent, our ability to tap into diverse talent is a crisis. But I do think that, for example, we are grappling with growth and innovation. Now, the connection that I'd like to make is that organizations can be innovative if they can solve complex problems. And you need two things to solve complex problems ahead of anyone else. Uh, one, you need the ability to be able to see it, see the problem in a new way, right? And diversity enables that. So it is very important to have diversity, not just in terms of gender and various other factors, but in terms of life stages, life experiences, thought processes, etc. as well. And somebody who has not been in the workforce will be able to think very differently, for example. So if organizations wish to be innovative, they need to find diverse talent, not just women who can act like men or not just people who have disabilities but can be given access. I mean, it really needs to rankle you. True diversity creates friction. So that's the first point. The second point for innovation is you need empathy or compassion. Now, compassion is a learnable skill, but you cannot teach it in a classroom. In order to learn compassion, you have to be working with vulnerable population and doing something without expecting anything in return. Most of the managers and leaders live in a bubble and are not able to empathize or be compassionate enough because they are not encountering vulnerable enough populations. So a good leader and a good manager is fundamentally a caregiver. And if you have caregivers or caregiving experience, you get both. In order to get innovation, you get both diversity and uh, empathy. And when you talk about diversity and empathy together, Normally, you think the two don't go together? Not really. I mean, I think they do. Uh, diversity and empathy go together. But, you know, when you introduce uh, somebody who thinks differently from you, hmm. or you introduce diversity of, uh, of thought, you still need to do something in order to be able to work together. Because what can typically happen is you can bring in diversity through the door, but quickly dampen it by saying, but this is how we do things. This is how things are done here. This is how we have done them. Working with diversity is a, or, or creating truly inclusive places is another layer on top of diversity. I think there are certain check boxes which people are checking in the name of diversity and inclusion. And uh, if that is there, then yes, diversity and inclusion is there. But widening that framework can make a big difference to everyone in the space. 
maybe people are not able to articulate it. Do you have any story in your recent experiences of meeting people? And you've been invited to so many fora to speak on this. Uh, any experience that you would like to share, uh, Bhagna, here on how people, the general public, are open to the idea while the decision makers are still mulling over the thoughts. So anybody in the general public who came up to you and thanked you for bringing this out in the open? So many, so many. There are two stories that are particularly uh, special to me. Uh, one is when, um, when uh, a young woman reached out to me on LinkedIn and um, said, you might not know uh, about me, but I am class of something to just maintain anonymity uh, from my college and said, uh, you have no idea how Caregiver Sadhi has supported me. Last November, I lost my mother to cancer and uh, all the conversations on the platform has helped me navigate through those periods. If I and our work could have been helpful to a young woman who was in the place where I was 25 years ago, then it is worth it. Last week, and interestingly, uh, I share the <laughs> I share my name with that person's mother. <laughs> it is coincidental, but so when I started on this journey, one of our mentors, Dr. Raj Rajiv Sarin, said to me, uh, "You know what you're undertaking is really hard," and I thought I was being this person, and I said, um, "Yeah, I can take a motorcycle to the hills," and he said, "I was going to tell you." Taking a motorcycle to the Himalayas is easier. This is harder. And my God, he has been right. <laughs> uh, my God, he has been so right. Last week, I had, uh, after I did my speech at uh, the Digital Health Summit, and I was explaining to somebody about Caregiver Sathi, and I said, uh, you know, most people would talk about uh, or work in the area of illness that has impacted them. And in my case, it, my father had multiple system atrophy. And, you know, the number of cases are so few, or they were at that time, and they continue to be so few. And that evening, I had a young girl connect with us to join our WhatsApp group. And when I reached out to her, interestingly, she shares her name with me <laughs> and she said her mother has multiple system atrophy and she's about the same age that I was. So these are not in organizations, but, you know, these are young women who are ambitious, intelligent, talented and deserve to be in the workforce. But they have to make compromises because their loved one is unwell. In one of the cases, they one of the caregivers decide could not continue working because work would be very demanding in a startup. And uh, the organization was not supportive. So the organization lost a talented person. I have hundreds of stories. I, I have had people uh, call me and be extremely vulnerable and emotional, saying how grateful they are for the fact that something like Caregiver Sathi exists. They just wish that it was easier accessible and more people in the organization understood. Because if they went and asked for something like this, it would feel like they were asking for a special privilege and nobody wants to ask for a special privilege. Very, very true. So would you say people are lonelier now? 
not not having what they need because we have moved into nuclear families compared to the joint family system that existed maybe a few years ago comparatively. And therefore, having something like this as part of organizational plan would definitely help. Uh, I wouldn't just say that people are lonelier. I would just say that modern caregiving is different, right? Uh, it's a challenge of a different kind. Um, we do need to shift the gender balance. We do need to recognize that women deserve to have financial independence and creative expression and careers and an opportunity to shine and realize their dreams in as much as men need to have the opportunity to care for their loved ones. A large number of times men have so much to do in terms of, you know, being employed, being the provider, etc. It's not like they don't want to care for children or the older adults. They do. It's just that they don't have the space in a patriarchal setup. So the balance needs to be on both and, of course, all genders. But it's not just about loneliness. I think it is about uh, the changing face of the modern caregiver and the fact that the modern family caregiver uh, is in nuclear families. So, you know, the sheer load is higher, but uh, the needs, the expectations, the, um, the solutions have to be different. They cannot be what my mother or my grandmother had. And are we ready to take those uh, steps and strides as a society to move forward for the modern caregiving that uh, is asking of us and challenging us with? I think so. I think so. I think we are absolutely at the inflection point uh, and it is better to not just be in a crisis. And one of my favorite quotes is, Sometimes it is better to stop pulling people out of the river and go upstream and figure out why they are falling in the river, thanks to Desmond Tutu. And I think uh, building infrastructure and investing uh, in caregiving for the future is an act like that, which is don't just wait for the crisis. You know, you can't dig a well uh, when you're thirsty. So people are falling into the river and we are pulling them out. But we also need to go upstream and figure out why they're falling in the river at all. So this is as good as any time. And uh, you spoke entirely about the pandemic and you told us how much things shifted in the pandemic, how much people's thought processes to understand caregiving itself per se shifted in the pandemic. And I loved how you beautifully brought it into today's setting when the pandemic has at least gone to a recent past, but we are living with something right next door and we are not aware of it. So Bhavna, as we move to the end of the conversation, is there, uh, I normally would have asked about the pandemic or three life lessons, but I'm gonna keep it open for you as to how would you like to conclude this conversation? Are there certain things that you need to tell everyone listening that this is a must do or a thought process that everyone should have? How would you like to conclude? I'm going to leave it open. You know, uh, in a recent presentation, I said this, so I'm going to say it again. Zindagi is beautiful and it is our responsibility to live it, live this gift to its fullest. So I believe that everyone deserves to live their life to their fullest. 
whatever that fullest at that point in time is. And my life lesson is that whatever we define as our purpose keeps evolving. Yeah. And it must. And how much fun is it that it is evolving? So uh, that is, and I take a lot of inspiration from my mother who is 74 and quite a force of nature, uh, has recently lost 25 kgs and is wearing my clothes that I don't fit into anymore. We don't know. We have a gift of life and we don't know how much of life we have and what are the possibilities. And uh, if there's a life lesson, I think uh, the life lesson would be... Uh, to live it up. So living it up is up to us, an individual choice on how we're going to live it up. But if everyone around us also supports us to live it up the way we would want to, I think society would be a far more caring, happier, and a wonderful space to coexist. And I also think that, you know, life can be funny. So if we can have humor on our side, why not? So. Sure. <laughs> yeah, I think one life lesson is to not take things very seriously. 54 is meaningless. 92 might be the 92 next thing. makes sense. What a lovely note to end. Yeah. And now I have hope. So maybe when we are 80, we should get into a conversation to see. Totally. <laughs> we are in this journey. Totally. Yeah, yeah. So waiting for that conversation, Bhavna, but wishing you luck. And love the authenticity with which you've carried on, wishing you more power and everything that you desire to take this unspoken but most needed part of human existence today, caregiving to another level. All the very best and stay blessed and inspired like always. Thank you so much for being here on You and I with Rashmi Shetty. And it's always a pleasure listening to you and your dreams. God bless you. Thank you for being the Sathi to caregiver Sathi. Thank you. With that, we come to the end of this weekly quest of You and I with Rashmi Shetty. Do let us know if you know people who make the world beautiful. Write in to rashmi.thethirdeye at gmail.com That is R-A-S-H-M-I dot T-H-E-T-H-I-R-D-E-Y-E at gmail.com Come, let's explore this amazing world together, both you and I.